So what we're going to do now is uh, see if we can switch gears a little bit. We have been going through a red letter study. And for those of you who are here for the first time, a red letter study is studying the words of Jesus. And in certain Bible editions, those words, those direct quotes from Jesus are printed in red ink to set them off from the rest of the page. And so that's the red letter study. And uh, we are just getting started, although we've been into it for seven Sundays. So this is the seventh Sunday. But we're not going through it chronologically, and we're going through it a bit thematically, because we want to go at least in the order of the way that Jesus taught. And the first and most important thing that Jesus needed to get across to everybody was the idea of kingdom. What is kingdom all about? His kingdom is the cornerstone of his teaching. It's basically the framework on which he hangs all of his teaching. So if we don't get kingdom, then we're cooked. There's no way we're going to understand what he's talking about. And unfortunately, we have misunderstood kingdom for 1,700 years here in the West. But, you know, not to be outdone, Jesus' first followers misunderstood kingdom. So we're in good company there. The early Jew, or the Jews of the first century understood kingdom to be the reestablishment of a political and sovereign Israel. That this Messiah warrior king would come up out of obscurity and uh, galvanize the people, force out the Romans, and reestablish um, a nation that was sovereign. We, on the other hand, look at kingdom as the kingdom of heaven, which means it's the heaven of the next life. And that is going to be disastrous to what Jesus is talking about. Uh, because kingdom is here and kingdom is now. Everything that Jesus talks about places kingdom not only here and now, but within. Kingdom moves from inside to outside and not any other way. And so for us to understand that kingdom is not a place, kingdom is a quality of life, a quality of being, a quality of presence, a quality of awareness that can only be achieved when we have emptied ourselves out of everything that we're clinging to for survival, for happiness, for advantage. All of those things that we have learned since our earliest childhood to hold on to and to use to be able to get from point A to point B, to get what we need in life, are the very things that will block us from being able to see the truth that is right in front of us, the truth that Jesus says will actually make us free. Free from what? Well, free from the fear free from all of the programs we put in place because of that fear, all of the obsessive thoughts and compulsive actions and so on and so forth, to be free of all of that so that we can be fully present and the choices we make will be beneficial to everyone who is affected by our decisions. In other words, we will go around leaving people better than we found them at every encounter. And that's what this gospel say about Jesus. He went about doing good things. This is where Jesus is trying to bring us because we will never experience life more fully, more energetically, more alive than when we are in that kind of state. So he's trying to teach us how to get there. And everything that we've talked about so far, the calling of the first disciples and so on and so forth, we're all about this relinquishing, dropping your nets at the shore and following Jesus. The last two weeks we talked about Nicodemus and having to be born again, born of not only of water, but of spirit. We, last week, we talked about the Samaritan woman and the, and the metaphor of living water. But all of these are of a piece. All of them are trying to drive to the same point. And like we said a couple of weeks ago, Jesus is a Johnny One note. He's only trying to get one point across. And when you really analyze his teaching, it's all about just getting that point across. Metaphor after metaphor after metaphor. 
you know. When you teach school, teach first grade, <clears throat> you put a concept out there, a couple light bulbs go on, so you say it a different way, a couple more light bulbs, a different way, a couple more, and you go as many different ways as you can get this concept across until as many light bulbs are on in the room, and then you have to move on. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's trying to get this across to us, metaphor after metaphor, symbol after symbol, story after story, to try to see if he can get us all to scamper after this life that he is living himself and desires for every single one of us. So here's the thing. When you encounter things in Scripture that are right next to each other, right, that means that they are tied together in meaning. There's a context being developed here when things are side by side. You need to pay attention to that. Pay attention to when things are side by side. Jewish poetry is like this. Jewish poetry doesn't repeat same sounds at the end of a word that we call rhyme or same sounds in the middle that we call alliteration or, or beginning alliteration and assonance in the middle and so on and so forth. They repeat concepts. And so in the scripture, when we see things together that are repeating the same context, uh, concepts, we need to pay attention. Now, we may not see that they're repeating the same concepts, but take a look and see how the meaning can be connected. Kind of like in a movie, you're watching a movie, you know, and a scene's going on, and they say, you know, who is that man behind the mask? And then cut, and then you see Bruce Wayne. Hey, well, he's the man behind the mask. We see this in our storytelling all the time. Things together are supposed to be connected in our minds. There's something going on. So, in John 2, let's go back. Nicodemus is in John 3. The Samaritan woman is in John 4. But even going back to John 2, so John 2, 3, and 4 chapters right next to each other. What happens in John 2? Well, we have the, uh, the marriage feast at Cana, and we have Jesus' first miracle right at the beginning of his public ministry, where he turns the water into wine. Very famous, right? From there, he goes up to Capernaum, and from there, he goes, because it's uh, near the Passover, he goes down to Jerusalem, and there he cleanses the temple. So in John 2, we've got these two events side by side changing the water into wine, and cleansing the temple. Right at the very beginning of his ministry, he really hasn't even started yet. Remember, he's kind of cross at his mother who asks him to do something about the fact that they ran out of wine because he says, my hour has not yet come. So he really hasn't even started his public ministry yet. And yet he does this sign, and then he cleanses the temple. Now this is interesting because every single one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, has the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. John puts it at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. But Mark and Matthew place it at the very end of his ministry. In fact, it's during Holy Week, just days before the crucifixion. And then the cleansing of the temple in Mark and Matthew is followed immediately by cursing of the fig tree, which for us is like, what in the world, right? Jesus sees a fig tree, got lots of leaves, it looks great, he's hungry. He walks over there, there's no, there's no figs. So he curses the fig tree and it withers. You know, what's, what's the deal? And it even said, it's not the season for figs. So why is Jesus cursing the poor fig tree? If you put the two together, then you get the meaning. The temple looks beautiful from the outside, looking at it. It looks like it's still the center of Jewish life, that it is still the sustenance of their spiritual lives. And yet inside, it's corrupt. Inside, it's just a, a den of thieves and robbers. This tree looks beautiful. And the fig tree has been the symbol of Israel since the very beginning. 
And so we have all these connections. The temple is a symbol of Israel. The tree is a symbol of Israel. They are both barren. They both cannot sustain life. They are in a withered state. Jesus didn't curse the fig tree. It's a metaphor, right? But the tree, he is revealing the witheredness of the, of the fig tree. So those two together at the very end of his ministry are kind of a judgment on Israel and Israel's state before he goes to the cross. But here's John putting at the beginning of his ministry, and he doesn't have a cursing of the fig tree in his gospel. Neither does Luke. Luke has a parable about it, but there's no cursing of the fig tree. He puts it together with the turning of the water into wine. Now, the water, especially the six water pots that were used to, for people to cleanse themselves before they went into the wedding feast is all about cleansing. It's about purification. Baptism is about immersing, purification, initiation into a new way of living life. And then wine was a symbol of joy to the Jews. So to go from repentance and purification into joy, and then Jesus beginning his ministry by cleansing the temple, it is a hopeful message that he is there to reform. He's there to, to refill what Judaism has become by the first century, especially under the Romans. And so you see those connections in a completely different context than you see the cleansing of the temple with the withering of the fig tree at the end of his ministry in Mark and Matthew. So now we take that story and we move to John 3, and now we have Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night, asking questions because he wants to know what in the world is going on. And Jesus tells him, you've got to be born again, you know, and he misunderstands and says, well, how can I crawl back into my mother's womb? Jesus says, no, you don't get this, really? He said, look, you're born of water, so there's water again. And we know what water is. Water is a physical birth, the amniotic fluid, or it's the waters of baptism, whatever, the first beginning of our life physically, our life spiritually. But he says, now you need to be born of spirit. And he likens the spirit to the wind, which blows wherever it wants to can't see it. You can hear the sound of it. You can see the effect of it, but you don't know where it's coming from, where it's going to. There's a graduation that needs to happen from your legal understanding of what's going on here into something much deeper. And then in John 4, move over to the Samaritan woman where he finds himself in Samaria on purpose where he wasn't supposed to go as a good Jew, talking to a woman in public, which he's not supposed to do as a good Jew, breaking all sorts of boundaries in order to have this conversation with her at the well where she comes to draw water. And for her, it's she's coming to get this well water, judge, drudgery, half a mile from her, her village every single day, carrying that pitcher back and forth, and he offers her living water. And if she drinks from this living water, she'll never thirst again. And, of course, she misunderstands. Where is it? So I don't have to carry this picture back and forth. But the living water is that's a, that's an idiom for, uh, uh, in the, for the Jews, which meant running water, water from a spring, from a brook, from, from a fountain, water that's safe to drink, water that's pure, water that's clean, water that's alive. And once again, just like Nicodemus, just like the water to the wine, Jesus is trying to get the woman to see there's a whole graduation that needs to happen here. From the static water in the well that you're drawing with drudgery every single day, there's a living water that flows like the wind through your life. Can you drink from that? And so he's trying to get these across. So you see, here is this theme that is, trans, uh, that is being transmitted here by these three chapters. And the theme is transformation. 
And water is the metaphor. Water is the agent of this change, of this transformation. And as he said, the water is physical. It's the well water. It's the waters of birth. It's the baptism that takes us into a new life, initiates us into it. But we're needing to move into the joy of the wine. And then from there into the living water, into the water that is running, into the wind that is always blowing through. We talked about that ruha in Aramaic, which means wind is also breath, wind, and spirit at the same time, defined by motion. There must be motion or it's not spirit, not breath, not wind. There must be motion or the water is not living. This is the whole idea here. So you see this, this, this beautiful connection and this building of themes, one theme, but building of stories and metaphors, trying to get this one point across. If you really want to see kingdom, which in their idiom means to taste it, to intimately experience it, there has to be this move past just mere obedience, this move past just following rules or looking at things legally. It has to move from the inside out, this transformation. Now, did John mean all this stuff when he wrote this? <laughs> Are we just putting a lot of... You know, I remember when I was in, uh, in college and I was taking writing courses. And I remember seeing this video of an interview with a, with a famous author. I can't even remember who the author was. And the, uh, <laughs> the interviewer is trying to show how erudite he is, I think, and telling him all these great themes that he saw in his writing and all this wonderful stuff. And the author's sitting there listening to him. And when the, finally the guy winds down and stops talking, he says, um, yeah, I guess you could say all that stuff's in there. <laughs> You know, a light bulb went on for me at that point as, as a, a wannabe writer. It's like, you know, you read all these commentaries about this, all this amazing stuff, and you think, these writers, how in the world do they get all this stuff in there? And it turns out maybe they're just telling stories. And then we are extracting the meaning out of it. But whether John put in purposely these connections, and my, my suspicion is he did, but even if he didn't, if we're taking it out and it's helping us to understand what Jesus is trying to get across, perfect. Worth the price of admission right there. doesn't really matter. Can we see the meaning there? Can we see the juxtaposition? Can we see the connection in the context? And does it reinforce this idea for us how we need to graduate above be ruthlessly honest with ourselves. Where are we at? Are we still just following rules? Are we trying to run our spirituality like a paint-by-numbers kit? Or are we really starting to create days and moments from the inside out? This is where Jesus is leading us. Now, Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman couldn't be more different. I mean, my gosh. Here's Nicodemus, old, old Jew, Right, educated, rich, a member of the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling body, a teacher of Israel, very invested in the system. And here's a Samaritan woman, you know, poor, drawing her own water every day. She's gone through five husbands and has a live-in boyfriend right now. You know, can't say that she's like on top of the system of her social ladder, but so different two people that couldn't be more different and yet they both ended up asking Jesus the same basic question because that question is universal to all of us wherever we are in our station in life wherever we are in our stage in life we still need to have the same questions answered and 
Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night so nobody will see him. The woman comes to the, the well at noon because she doesn't want anyone to see her. She doesn't want to meet anyone from her village because her reputation is not so good. And so they end up with Jesus all alone, having this one-on-one connection with him. Imagine that you had a private audience with the Pope. Now, maybe the Pope isn't your paragon of spirituality. Okay, so substitute whoever else you would like to have in that position, but that you, this person that you have way up on a pedestal, that you could have a one-on-one conversation with this person. What would you ask? What would you say if you had a precious few minutes alone with this person? What would be the first thing that you'd want to talk about? Private moment. How about a private moment with Jesus alone? What would you ask then? What would be right on the tip of your tongue? Would you be able to speak at all? That's from a song, isn't it? So here's the thing. The question that you would probably ask, however you would formulate formulate it, would probably be the same one that Nicodemus wanted to know, the same thing that Samaritan woman wanted to know, and the same thing that the rich young ruler who approached Jesus wanted to know. And it's a central question of life. It's about life and meaning and everything, right? Remember the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? (laughs) They wanted to know the answer to life, meaning, and everything. And so they built a computer that they called Deep Thought. And it was actually the Earth. They built the Earth over a seven and a half million year program to calculate And all of us, all the beings on earth, were part of the program running for seven and a half million years to answer the question of of life and meaning and everything. And after the program is won and they're all gathering expectantly to get the answer, the computer says, well, you're not going to like it. The answer is 42. (laughs) So what's this about 42? Now, here's another example. I have read pages and pages of what 42 actually means, from mathematics to cosmology to numerology to all these reasons why 42 is the number. And when Douglas Adams was interviewed once about 42, he said, well, I know I needed a number that was kind of a small number and kind of an ordinary number, and 42 seemed like the funniest number I could think of. It was just random, you know. But now all these ideas of why 42 is significant. The point of it is, is that when you're asking these sort of questions, you cannot get a straight answer. There is no answer that's logical, that's rational, that is going to give us the answer to life and meaning and everything. There's no way that that's possible. That is something that we have to live through, become convinced of but it can't be downloaded to us. And so here's this rich young ruler coming to Jesus, attempting to do exactly that. And I wanted to read through this because this is so important for us. And I want to do this as a harmonized. Remember we said this study is going to be a harmony of the four Gospels. We're going to be pulling from all four Gospels to try to thread together the narrative and get the details that we need to be able to tell the story. Well, here's a perfect example of how this works. You know, through all the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we get the details, if you put all three of the accounts together, of this young man who comes to Jesus and asks him the question. So at Matthew 19, starting at verse 16, someone came to him and said, see, in Matthew, it's just someone. 
We don't know that it's a man. We don't know that he's young. We don't know that he's rich. We don't know that he's a ruler. We don't know nothing. It's just someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? There's a question, huh? And Jesus said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And then the young man said to him, Which ones? Okay, there is the justification, right? But that first question, you know, why are you asking me about what is good? What is the rich young ruler doing? We're going to find out in just a second. He kept all the commandments from his youth. He was already a great rule follower. He had done everything right because he was a civil magistrate or some kind of position of authority which had given him a lot of income. He was doing everything right, but he knew something was missing. But what is he doing? He's coming to Jesus. What more good thing can I do? What more rules can I follow? How much more can I obey so that I can fill this hole that I still feel inside me? And Jesus isn't going to go for that. Why do you look for some? Why are you asking me about what's good? There's only one good. He's pointing him back to the wind. Do you see? He's pointing him back to the living water. He's pointing him back to the direct connection and experience of his God that is the only thing that's going to fill that void. Not the direction he's going. At Luke 18, verse 18, a ruler questioned him, saying, So now we know we've got a ruler here. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So this time it's not what good thing, but what good teacher. At Mark 10, verse 17, as he was setting out on a journey, that's Jesus, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now what's Jesus' answer here at Luke 18, starting at verse 19? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. He's a good Jew, doing everything that he's supposed to do. At Matthew 19, verse 20, the young man said to him, All these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? So there's the question. He knows something is missing. And Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions. At Mark 10, verse 21, looking at him in this same moment, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, With people, it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. All right. Between all three of these Gospels, we get all the details about the rich young man and this particular encounter. We see him coming to Jesus, trying to get more rules to follow. Jesus rebuffs that, tries to redirect him. When he persists, then he says, okay, 
Here is the first step. Here's the way forward. Are you willing to drop your nets? Are you willing to sell everything that you own so that you can actually follow the path that I am laying out here? Because it's the only way that it's going to happen. These are the last things you're clinging to and need to let go of. But he's not yet ready. You know, he's still bisha, unripe, right? Immature, not ready for prime time. He's just not ready to go there yet. We can hope that he finally got there. And the question he's asking, what's the question? How do we not die? I suppose would be one way to look at it. At least that's the way we would look at it if he's looking for eternal life, right? But that's exactly what he does ask. How do I obtain eternal life? And we talked about this. To a Jew, especially a Jew of this time, eternal life was not life that continued forever and a day out there someplace in the afterlife. It was life that was eternally new and alive, like living water, like the wind, every moment of your life right here and right now. What he was asking for, how do I feel complete? How do I fill this hole that's in me that something is missing? How do I have the abundant life that Jesus said that he came to bring? That's the real question he's asking. How do I feel fulfilled? How do I feel like my life has meaning and purpose and that I actually know who I am? That's the question we should all be asking. That's the best question we can possibly ask. Now, he phrases it as, what good thing must I do? And good teacher, what thing must I do? And Jesus' initial answer is just like a 42. You know, He's not going to give him this. He's going to try to redirect and get him to go in a direction that really makes sense. Because the answer is not the problem. The question is the problem. The questioner is in the, on the wrong track looking for this formula, looking for another rule to obey. And Jesus needs to redirect back to God, to personal experience, to intimacy, right? That's what's going on here. So much more is going to be required of this man, of Nicodemus, of the Samaritan woman, of each one of us, than just to have a passive answer to a question downloaded to us. How much time do we still spend praying for that answer, especially when times get difficult? We want to know the answer, the plan. We want clarity again. The uncertainty is what's killing us. But every time we ask those kinds of questions, we're going to get 42. Because it's the only answer that can be given to a finite logical mind. So we have this ruler in Luke who runs up and kneels before Jesus in Mark, who is young in Matthew, and these details are summing up into the account that we have. And the details that were given of this young man are showing us his character. They're painting a portrait. He's rich, he's young, he's a civil magistrate, but also notice he's humble. He's willing to run up and kneel down. He's idealistic. He believes that there is something that he can do more. He's eager. He's sincere. Jesus loves him. He sees the sincerity of his heart. And Jesus tells him, well, keep the commandments because he kind of sees that this is the, the uh, direction you're going here, looking for more rules. Just you already know what the rules are. Keep the commandments. There aren't really any more. He asks which ones. He's already keeping those. You know, so what am I lacking? The question is implied in Luke and Mark, but it's stated outright in Matthew. The young man was sincere, a sincere seeker but he knows that something is missing. And more importantly, like many questioners of Jesus, he's not trying to trap him. He's not trying to ridicule him. He actually needs and wants this answer. Maybe he's in the middle of a midlife crisis, huh? 
crisis of meaning and purpose and needs to find this because it's just making him crazy. But he's searching. He's for real. And so Jesus is moved to tell him, if you wish to be complete, interesting choice of words. Remember when we talked a couple weeks ago about the man who was laying at the pool of Bethesda, infirm for 38 years? And the, the, uh, the folklore that when the waters were stirred up, it was angels in the water stirring up. And the first one in the pool would get healed of whatever they were. So they camp around the pool constantly trying to get, be the first one in when these waters are stirred up. What does Jesus, when he encounters him and sees him there and realizes he's been there forever in a day, what does he say to him? Do you wish to get well? Now that sounds like the most no-brainer question of all. But it's the same question that Jesus is asking the rich, rich young ruler. Do you wish to be complete? Do you wish to be complete? Do you wish to be well? Do you wish to be whole? Sabah, the, the, the word that is translated here as wish, is the same word that also means will. Tsebiana, same roots, right? In Aramaic, means will. But it means will in the sense of desire or pleasure or deepest purpose, delight. That is the will of God. It's God's greatest pleasure and delight. Not some legal instrument as we would typically think of it. Is it your will to be complete? Is it your desire? Is it your delight? Is it your deepest purpose to be whole? And the word there, germiah, means perfect, but in the sense of complete and fulfilled and whole at the right place at the right time in perfect harmony that's the idea of perfect not the perfectionist way we think of perfect as without mistake it doesn't mean that but whole and fulfilled do you wish to be that that's what Jesus is asking do you want to be ripe do you want your fig tree to have figs on it <laughs> that's what he's asking this is the question are you willing to do, and the only way you can do this is to sell everything in the sense of letting it go. Clip your identification with these things that you own, these things that you do. But he's not ready to do that, and he goes away grieving. He's still Bisha. He's not ready. And he literalizes this whole thing. Jesus, yes, sell your possessions because he knows his possessions are what he clings to for his sustenance and his security and his advantage. But he didn't really need to sell everything. And neither do we. Thank God, right? It's a metaphor. Jesus is saying, clip your identity to these things. But he can't do that either. And he over-literalizes the same way that Nicodemus literalized, the same way that the Samaritan woman literalized, because they're thinking on that level. They're thinking on that plane. They're not ready to get into the spiritual metaphor here that can only be pointed toward. They're not ready for that yet. So Jesus turns to his other disciples and says how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are flabbergasted. Don't you love that word, flabbergasted? I had to look it up just to find out where in the world did flabbergasted come from? Nobody really knows, you know, but the best I've heard was it, it's a combination. Someone put flabby and aghast together because I guess, you know, when something hits you that way and your jaw goes slack and it's, you're kind of flabby, you know, and you're aghast at the same time, flabbergasted. Who knows? You get that for free. Anyway, 
So the disciples are flabbergasted. What the heck is going on here? Because to them, remember, kingdom equals this spectacular reestablishment of Israel, which means they're going to be a rich nation again. They're not going to be the poorest of the poor. They're not going to be stuff on the bottom of a soldier's boot. They're going to be a rich nation again. So what are you talking about? That the rich can't enter the kingdom? The kingdom is rich. This is baking my noodle here. I don't know what to do with all of this. So they're trying to understand what he's talking about. And then the wealth, wealth to a person, and as much as it was to them 2,000 years ago, it's the same way with us, isn't it? Don't we think of wealth as a blessing? Don't we think of wealth as proof of God's approval? The Old Testament law says, if you keep my commandments, then I'm going to bless you. Your fields are going to produce crops. Your wives are going to produce children. You're going to win all your battles. All these great things are going to happen to you if you do what I'm telling you to do, which is telling us this is a performance-based deal here. Like trained seals, if we do what we're supposed to do, then God is going to give us this wealth. But here's Jesus saying, no, the wealth is the problem. The wealth is what's keeping you from. And Jesus debunks this whole idea, this whole concept of wealth being God's um, sign of approval and poverty or infirmity being the sign of God's disapproval. In John 9, when he encounters the man who was born blind and his disciples immediately ask him, who sinned that this man would be born blind? Did he sin? How does he sin before he's born? Okay. Um, And then... Was it his parents? Was it relatives? Was someone in his family that sinned that he should be born blind? And Jesus says, no, it has nothing to do with that. So he's taking that whole concept and shredding it, pulling it apart. And yet here they are still flabbergasted because he says it's going to be harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And so it's not about the physical wealth. It's about anything that we pile up in our lives, anything that we come to rely on, identify with, anything that comes to define us. That is what keeps us from seeing the truth that is right in front of us, from being at that ground zero position where we can see in true humility who we really are. So it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. A lot of interpretations about that one too. One of them that I heard that I really wanted to believe kind of like Fox Mulder, I wanted to believe, is that the idea that, you know, in these walled cities of antiquity, you know, at night they would close the gates, the main gates would be closed so that, you know, armies couldn't come and so on and so forth. But they'd have this little keyhole opening in the wall, this this tiny little thing that would at least allow ingress in and out, but not enough to amount an attack on the city. And it was called the eye of the needle. And now if you came to the city and wanted to get in after hours and you had your camel all laden with all your possessions, you would have to unload your camel, pull everything through piece by piece. The camel would have to get down on its knees and you'd have to pull it through. And that was the idea of the, uh, the camel through the eye of the needle. It's a great story and a great visual, great metaphor. There's absolutely no evidence that it ever existed. <laughs> But I would like to believe it because it's kind of a cool story. But it's amazing how that just is around the Internet and every. Just look it up. You'll find that story over and over again and told from the pulpits and everything because it's so great. But it doesn't look like it's true. All right. How about gamla? Gamla in Aramaic means camel. But it also means rope at the same time because most of the ropes back then were made from camel hair. 
No, it's easier for a rope to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. That also works a little less impossible, right? And say, okay, maybe that could be the, the answer to this whole thing. But then the third issue is that there is a Hebrew idiom. And it re- basically means, like when we say, it'll be a cold day in hell before such and such happens. And they would say, you know, before the camel goes through the eye of the needle. Interestingly, in the Babylonian Talmud, there were two Talmuds, one in Palestine and one in, in Babylon. And so Babylon is in you know, Mesopotamia between the rivers. And of course, Israel is on the coast. And so in the Israeli, it wouldn't be Israeli, the Palestinian Talmud, it would be the camel going through the eye of the needle. But in the Babylonian Talmud, it was the elephant going through the eye of the needle because the elephant was the largest indigenous animal in Mesopotamia and the camel was the largest indigenous animal in the Levant. And so you have these, but basically it's an idiomatic phrase. You know, it's just a rhetorical device. It was hyperbole. It was an exaggeration to try to get this point across. This ain't going to happen, right? So however you slice it, and we went a long way around to probably what you already were figuring out anyway, right? But there's a great Jewish saying that also kind of puts another little bit of light on this, that the needle's eye is not too narrow for two friends. The world is not wide enough for two enemies. I love that. The needle's eye is not too narrow for two friends, but the whole world is not wide enough for two enemies. So this was part of their parlance. This was part. This is not going to be a saying that is unique with Jesus. He is pulling out of the culture to make a point to them that this is something that is going to be impossible for humans to do. You know what? We do not give up our power voluntarily. Nobody gives up power voluntarily. If you think you have power, you're going to use it, you're going to cling to it, and you're not going to let go of it no matter what. Until you realize that your power is an illusion, you can give up an illusion. But what is it going to take for you to see that truth, that the power that you think you wield is only illusory? That's where Jesus is trying to get us. It is impossible for us to give up what we need to give up to get through the eye of a needle. It's impossible for us as humans, but not for God. Through God's presence, with God's presence, taking the first few steps into intimacy with God, we can then begin to let go of the last thing that we are clinging to. But only then. It's the only time it's going to ever feel risk-free enough for us to take those first few steps. This rich young man is the third questioner of Jesus on eternal life. And each one of them is clinging to a compulsion. Each one is clinging to something that they can't let go of. Each one of them had uh, an assumed identity. Each one of them had a goal that they wanted to get to. And each one had a compulsion that they were clinging to. With Nicodemus, his identity was as a teacher of Israel. His goal was knowledge. Typical for a teacher, right? His compulsion was clarity. He wanted clarity. He wanted certainty. He needed that in order to be able to move forward because of the brain that he was using primarily, right? Which gives me the perfect opportunity to tell you my Mother Teresa story, which I know most of you have heard, but we got a couple here that might see the joke as new. But at any rate... Um, uh, John Kavanaugh, who is a famous Jesuit uh, here in the States, hit his midlife crisis, hit his low where nothing was making any sense. And so he took sabbatical and went off to uh, India 
to spend time with Mother Teresa to see if he could get some clarity on what he needed. And first day at the Houses of the Poor, he meets Mother Teresa, and uh, she greets him warmly, and he says, oh, I'm so glad to be here. Yes, yes. Please pray for me. And she says, yes, absolutely. What do you want me to pray for? He says, pray that I might find clarity. She says, no, I'm not going to do it. And, of course, he's flabbergasted, right? What do you mean? He says, because clarity is the last thing that you are clinging to and need to let go of. But you have such clarity. She laughed and said, I don't have clarity. I have trust. I will pray that you find trust. Very different than clarity. Trust is becoming convinced of something even when the evidence is not there, even when the uncertainty persists, even in the midst of the mystery and the paradox. To trust is what we absolutely do need to do. Mother Teresa understood that and saw it in him in the same way that he was asking the question of her, that all three are asking the question of Jesus and has the same kind of 42-ish answer, right? Because it's the only answer that can be given. The young man has the identity of a ruler of his people. He has the goal of a plan. He wants the definitive plan to get him to point B. And his compulsion is control. He wants to be able to control the outcome. Working in recovery for as long as I have and as long as many of us have, we understand that the first step of AA is to admit that you're powerless. Your life is unmanageable. Until that moment happens, there is no further progress. There cannot be. We have to admit the illusion of our power because we're not going to let go of the power. We're not going to let go of the need for control, but we can let go of the illusion. We have to admit we are powerless. Does that mean we're choiceless? Does that mean we can't have a choice? Does that mean we're victims? No. Because the second step, second step is to come to believe that there is a power greater than ourselves that will and can restore our life to sanity. And the third step is to give yourself over, to actually submit to this power, not just unseen God, but to the community and the people and the teachers and the counselors and everyone around you who really seems to care more about you than you care about yourself. But will you listen to them? Will you do something different? It starts with the release of the compulsion for control. Now, the Samaritan woman, her identity was as a Samaritan, you know, especially against the Jews. Her goal is connection, but her compulsion is codependence. You see it in her relationship after relationship after failed relationship. You see it in her clinging, wanting that connection, in the sense that even a dysfunctional relationship is better than none. And so each one of these has their identity, has their goal, has their compulsion, three different approaches to try to get forward in life and feel like you have something for something. But they're all fear-based. And of course, remember, three is a symbolic number. It means completion. It means fulfillment. It means perfection in the way that we've been talking about perfection. So it really represents the sum of all of our fears, right? Clarity, control, codependence. Think about how prevalent that is around us and in our own lives. Our own need for these same three compulsions that need to be put down if we're ever going to really follow Jesus. They're all legalistic. Nicodemus was all about theology. The man was all about the law. The woman was all about ritual worship. 
She debates with Jesus. What mountain are we supposed to be worshiping on, right? They're all literalistic. Nicodemus wants to know how he can climb back into his mother's womb. The man is sad because he can't sell everything that he owns. And the woman is looking for well water that she doesn't have to draw every day. They're missing the point because they're still processing on the surface level in a two-dimensional sort of plane. And so this theme that Jesus is building here in John 2, 3, and 4 of transformance, right? To take the literal womb, the literal wealth, the literal water, and move it into spirit and truth, worshiping in spirit and truth, which means you're blowing with the wind, which means you're flowing with the water. See, it's so hard for us to let go of our security blankets and our identity as we understand it. Our core beliefs, as they have come with us out of childhood, our unconscious programs for happiness and security and survival, clarity, control, codependence. It's really who we think we are. It's our idols, if you want to look at it that way. It's the mammon, the things that we have piled up in our lives that have come to define us. If we are going to be able to go where Jesus is going, which is to be able to see kingdom, which in that language means to taste kingdom, to be intimately familiar with, in contact with kingdom, we're going to have to be born again from water to spirit to move our consciousness into the the realm of metaphor and paradox and mystery and uncertainty. We're going to need to drink the living water, the water that is always moving, to be willing to be blown about by the wind and not know where we're coming from or where we're going. Are we willing to do those kinds of things? Because if we are, then we can start to remember. Remember what? Remember that we truly are royalty that we truly are sons and daughters of our God and that we truly have nothing to fear because of who we are. When we do let go of our nets, when we do sell everything, when we leave even our father at the shore and move into this new direction and we drop these false identities, then we can begin to see and taste the true identity that we have, that we've forgotten. We just forgot. Our self-awareness, our cares, our worries, our fears, our abandonments, our traumas, our hurts, all caused us to cover it over and to forget who we really are. And it's impossible for us to do this alone, to go through the eye of the needle alone. But with God, all things are possible. To take the first steps toward real experiential connection with God's presence is the first step that we need to overcome the obstacles, to see for just a moment, let the curtain part for just a moment and see the illusion of everything that we built up, all the roles we play, all the things that we think we are, so we can see that is the illusion of control. We can let that go. And in this fearless dependence, this fearless vulnerability, find everything that our lives are about. Let's pray. Father, this is the crux of it. And this is the most difficult spot. And you know that. 
You know what we need before we ask. You know what we're going to face before we even turn the corner. And you provided us everything that we need in order to complete this journey home to you. So all we ask is that we have the courage to take the first steps to meet your spirit where it is, which is right here and now, and to find in that presence, to find in you the courage we need, the faith that we need, to continue to move with your motion in the direction that you're leading. We know that you've given us everything already, that you withhold nothing ever, and that it's all up to us. So help us. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Help us to take those first steps. And if we don't know how to do that, help us to have enough humility to come up and ask questions of somebody, anybody, to have discussions, to connect, so that we can get that sense of the truth of all of this and take those first few steps. But thank you, Father, for everything that you're giving us. And thank you for the constancy of your love that is always drawing us. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.